I know that we have been bombarded with imagery from the news this past week. Just as people were reflecting on what happened on September 11th. Today is a day of remembrance as we remember the loss of approximately 3,000 people. 6,000 were injured, but 3,000 paid the ultimate price with their lives in one of the most sinister acts of terrorism in history. It's hard to believe it's been 10 years. It's unbelievable. I think we all remember where we were that fateful morning. I remember the confusion, the fear, the anger, watching the live feed after United Airlines flight number 11 crashed into the North Tower, and then to see United Airlines flight 175 crash into the South Tower was devastating. I recall wondering what was going to happen next. Just a half hour later, American Airlines Flight 77 crashed into the Pentagon. And a half hour after that, United Airlines Flight 93 crashed into Shanksville, Pennsylvania. It was headed either to the Capitol or to the White House. And after some courageous passengers had heard what was going on with the other planes, they interrupted these terrorists, stopping the hijackers, but crashing in the process. It was a horrendous day. A devastating day, watching the fires on the World Trade Center, seeing the flames and smoke pour out, as well as the people dangling out of the windows just trying to get a breath, and then watching men and women falling to their death was unbearable. If that weren't enough, seeing those massive towers collapse and the ash and dust fall upon the city as people are running for their lives, crossing the different bridges was horrendous. The question upon everyone's mind was why? We all started to learn more about terrorism than we ever had known before. Names like Al-Qaeda, the Taliban, Jihad, and Osama bin Laden became emblazoned upon our psyche. We got used to long lines at the airport, screening, willing to undergo any type of mistreatment to make sure that we had safety. There are days that we encounter in our lives that are life-changing, and that day was a day that changed a nation. It changed a people. It changed us forever. Never again will we be the same as we were before that day. It changed how we thought, how we went about our lives. It was a tragedy, and it's forever embedded on our minds. But it's not the biggest tragedy in history. It wasn't the greatest number of people to die on a single day, no. August 6, 1945, the first atomic bomb dropped on Hiroshima, Japan, killed an estimated 80,000 people. Or on August 9, 1945, when 70,000 people lost their lives as the second atomic bomb dropped on Nagasaki, Japan. If you were to ask the Japanese what their worst day in history was, it might be that. Or perhaps the tsunami in 2004 that killed an estimated 230,000 people. 230,000 people. Or maybe the Haiti earthquake that killed approximately 316,000 people. All of them are tragedies. Two were natural disasters, two were in war, and one was simply an act of terrorism. All of them were life-changing, however. But the biggest tragedy in history didn't occur on any of those days. It occurred the day that God went to the cross. When man crucified his creator, this God of love, who gave himself for sinful man, that was the most life-changing day in history. Nothing was greater than that day, save perhaps the resurrection. And from that day spawned many changes. Men and women could be saved from God's wrath, beneficiaries of His substitutionary death on the cross, passing from guilty to innocence, 
from darkness to light, from being unforgiven to forgiven, from, and from death to life, from hell to heaven. We who have been saved, who have been entrusted with a life-changing ministry because of that day, because of that life-changing act that God did in history, by our faith in Him, we now become recipients of that life-changing act. And then we are entrusted with a life-changing ministry from that day. Today we are going uh, to do something a little bit different. I'm going to ask you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Philippians. Now the reason we're looking at this is we're standing at the precipice of the beginning of the year. Though it's not the next year, but from a ministry standpoint, from a church standpoint, we're, we're getting revved up for this fall and the ministries in which we are going to be entering in. Awana just began. Our men's and women's Bible studies, our, our groups, our small groups are going to be starting up. People are getting back in the routine. Some are, are coming back from vacation. You're trying to get back in the routine. The kids are in school and, and all of these different things are settling down. And we're beginning to rev up for this new year. And we need to think, what is the mindset that we should have? What should we be thinking as we go into this this new ministry period of time? And what does a good life-changing ministry look like? See, as we look within the book of Philippians, we're seeing the Apostle Paul write to this church at Philippi, which was a Roman colony. Uh, He had undoubtedly visited this church. It was a church that he had planted. He'd visited it several times. And he is writing to this church from prison. Now, some think he was in prison in uh, Caesarea or in Ephesus, but it was most likely he was writing from prison in Rome. And he had received a letter from one of the church members, a guy by the name of Epaphroditus. And he writes in response to what he had heard, what was going on into the, the Philippians. And the Philippians had partnered with Paul in ministry. They had seen the life change in Paul's life. They had been transformed because of it. And then they became, they partnered with him to facilitate or to propagate this life-changing ministry. And undoubtedly, the relationships were extremely close that they had together. And it would have been heart-wrenching for them to find out or to discover that Paul had been imprisoned and he was facing execution. So Paul writes to encourage them. He writes to, to tell them to press on, to follow his example of life, along with another man, Timothy, and tell him that Timothy was coming along to visit soon, or he hoped to have Timothy sent to them to encourage them. And also to follow the Epaphroditus' way of life. But most of all, to follow the example of Christ. To set before them, that's the example, the supreme example of Jesus Christ in the life that He lived is to be our example. And we are to emulate His life. Because in emulating His life, we will discover what true life change is in ourselves and in our midst. So Paul is writing all of these things to us. And we're going to look into this book and get an overview of what a life-changing ministry looks like. I'm going to be skipping throughout these four chapters today, so I'd like you to stay with me. We're going to start off with just with one text that we're going to read. It's Philippians chapter 1, verse 3 through 11. And then from that, we're going to use that as a springboard to go into various different aspects of this book. So please stand with me for the reading of God's Word as we look and see what this life-changing ministry that God has entrusted to our care looks like. The Apostle Paul, by the Holy Spirit, writes, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace. 
both in my imprisonment in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let's pray. Father, we come into your presence asking you to show us how that day that changed history as we know it, that day that your son went to the cross, opened up a whole new world to us and gave us a ministry that we have been entrusted with to be stewards of. Lord, help us to know how to be good stewards of everything you've entrusted to our care and use us for your glory, that your name might advance throughout the entire universe and that you might receive great glory and we might increase in joy. We pray your blessing on this time now. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Now, Paul lays out, lays out a template for life-changing ministry, and I'd like you to follow along with me as we're going to be skipping through this book. Through this letter, we can see, first of all, that life-changing ministry is community-oriented. Look at verse 3 with me for a moment. I thank my God and all my remembrance of you. He's talking about all these people in this church, always in every prayer of mine, for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. See, he's concerned for them. He loves them. And they care for him. See, that's what being together as a body is all about. And I have to ask ourselves the question, do we have that concern for one another? See, I was at our small group training a couple of weeks ago as we get ready for this fall, and I heard a member of one of the groups on our campus uh, when talking about being together and caring for one another. One of the, the members of a small group spoke up to uh, Tim, Tim was. Tim Badal, who is the teaching pastor at the other campus, was uh, facilitating this, and he was saying, is there an example of concern within your group for one another? And one group member said, you know, we, are, we, we care a great deal for one another. He said, that's great. He goes, no, no, no. We would go so far as to die for one another. And that caused everybody in the group to, shh. When you have that type of concern for one another and love for one another, I mean, that's true community. That's the type of community that Paul was a part of with the church in Philippi. I mean, they had an intimate concern for one another. See, I believe today that many of us don't do that. Many of us like to be anonymous worshipers. We like to come in with our lives, and mess that they are, and we know that they're a mess, and we like to be anonymous. Come in, no one talk to us, and go on our way. Because we don't want people speaking into our lives. But that's not how the body of Christ is supposed to be. Anne Ortland, in her book, Up With Worship, wrote this. Christians can be grouped into two categories, marbles and grapes. Marbles are single units that don't affect each other except in collision. Grapes, on the other hand, mingle juices. Each one is part of the fragrance of the church body. The early Christians didn't bounce around like loose marbles, ricocheting in all directions. Picture them as a cluster of ripe grapes, squeezed together by persecution, bleeding and mingling into one another. Fellowship and worship them is genuine Christianity freely shared among God's family members. It's sad to think about how many Christians today are missing that kind of closeness. Sermons and songs, while uplifting and necessary, provide only part of a vital church encounter. We need involvement with others too. If we roll in and out of church each week without acquiring a few grape juice stains, we really haven't tasted the sweet wine of fellowship. So what are we? What are you? Are you a grape? Or are you a marble? 
Are you in community? Are you intimately sharing your life? Paul had intimately shared his life with them and they with him. See, most of us today want to stiff arm any type of community. People, I've met people that want preaching to be a certain way, worship to be a certain way, but when real community comes to them, they can't handle it. They don't want others to see the garbage in their life, but we must. See, when Jesus washed Peter's feet on his last night on earth, Peter refused. He came to him and Peter said, no, 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 Lord, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus said to him, unless I wash you, then you have no part with me. In other words, unless I have the dirt of your life, the intimate sin that you try to hide, then you have no part from me, no part with me. So we have to give him the junk, the garbage of our life. If, if I don't have, give everything to God, then we can't have him. See, that's real community. Anything else is not real but an illusion. Now, being community-oriented involves the right attention. Look at verse 7 with me. He says, It is right for me to feel this way about you all. Because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. He holds them in his heart. It's the intimate center of of their being. In in the Hebrew culture, the heart is considered the, the center of passion and the affections and the will. And he's saying, I have such a, a closeness to you. I care so much for you. And he has this attention that he is he has for them and they for him. Because they are partakers with Him of grace. Meaning that they are saved. Excuse me. And they love Him. They've partnered with Him through thick and thin. Both in my imprisonment and in defense and confirmation of the gospel. See, Paul had proclaimed the gospel and they were with him. They supported his ministry. They funded his ministry endeavors. And even when Paul had been arrested and put in prison for proclaiming the gospel, they didn't drop out. They didn't quit their support. They still held on. I mean, that was a a very socially alienating thing to be arrested, to be put in prison and getting ready to be executed. But they didn't leave him. They continued to pray for him and support his ministry. For Paul and for many others, it's tempting to pay attention to them because they were financially contributing. So he could have given undue attention to them because they were the ones funding his ministry. That's why we as pastors don't know who gives and who doesn't. Who doesn't? Why? Because we might be tempted to pay undue attention to them, which is wrong. See, Paul doesn't do that, though. I mean, he loved them, but he goes even further, showing his affection for them. It just wasn't because of the money. He loved them. Look at verse 8. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, he yearns for them. The word here, yearn, means intensely desire. And the word for affection, it's splagnon, literally refers to the bowels. And in the New Testament, it's used figuratively figuratively to describe the inward parts, indicating the heart is the seat of emotion. It's the intimate most part, this place where they feel. It's from the gut. Even as the word heart is used figuratively, figuratively today. And the allusion is to the sympathy, tenderness, and love of the Redeemer. He came from the gut, from the essence of who he was. That's how he yearned for them. He had an amazing love for his people. Now, we are a church who come together for worship. But the real intimacy, the real discipleship happens during small groups as we get together each week. Yes, God shows himself through the preaching of the word and through the corporate worship. But we come and we share the intimate details of our lives in a small group. 
See, the people in the New Testament didn't have such regimented lifestyles today as we do. They instead lived together. They did life together. They lived in community together. And today, that occurs here, but in small groups. Now, small groups aren't just one thing we mark off the list to be involved with. It's one of the most integral parts of Village Bible Church. If we don't have community where we are being together and sharing life together, then we're missing the mark is what it means to be a church. We can just clearly go to Acts 2 to look at that. The early church had everything together and everything in common. They wanted to be together. They desired it. For some in our body, though, I don't sense a desire to be together. It's more of a task to mark off the list of things to do. We're just doing our duty. And if that's the case, then I don't think you've experienced what true community is like. If a small group is a chore to you, then you must ask yourself, why? What is wrong? Is it the group? Is it the leader? Is it the material? Or is it you? We are to pay attention to community, have affection for one another, and that is all for one reason and one reason only. It's for the advancement of the gospel. That's letter C in your notes. Look at verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. I mean, that's how intimately they're sharing their struggles together. They're sharing the pains and the frustrations of life together so that it has become apparent or become known through the whole imperial guard. These are the people that are watching over him as he's in prison. And to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. See, they they heard about his way of life. They'd seen it intimately, and then they saw what he was going through. And it emboldened them to do more, to share in a greater and stronger way. See, Paul saw everything that was happening to him that served a purpose, and that was to make Christ known. That's what our purpose is to do, to show the world who Jesus is. And in order for that to happen, we have to be transparent. We have to be with one another. And when that occurs, God starts doing something in us and through us. He begins to, uh, brings us to the end of ourselves. And he starts magnifying himself through uh, us. Others see Christ in us as we begin to suffer. Jesus is magnified when we suffer. And others want to do more to serve him. See, I think of what Paul and how far he was willing to go to advance the gospel. He gives us a glimpse into the price he paid to follow Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he writes this. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I'm talking like a madman. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. I mean, that's pretty bad so far. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. And a night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? See, that's how far Paul was willing to go. He was willing to go to suffer the loss of all things. So the name of Christ might be propagated. How far are you willing to go to follow Christ? What price are you willing to pay? I mean, you can't give the price of death if you won't even go across your cubicle. 
If you're not willing to speak to your co-workers or your friends and family, how can you possibly say that you would die for Jesus Christ? Are you willing to suffer gross injustice and unimaginable loss? Are you ready to be severed from family and friends alike? Paul was. Consider for a moment Paul's background and what he was willing to give up in his service for Christ. He was born into a Jewish family in a Roman town that enabled him to have unparalleled opportunities and privileges in the ancient world. His heritage made him a Jew, but it was his intellectual ability and education that afforded him the opportunity to reach the level of a Pharisee, being educated by one of the greatest teachers of the day, a man by the name of Gamaliel. However, what made Paul stand out was his zeal. He was determined. He was dedicated. And see, when Christianity was in its infant stages, Paul was one of its chief opponents, overseeing executions and going from house to house, dragging off men and women and having them thrown into prison. But he was transformed. See, while on the way to root out some of the Christians in Damascus, God appeared to him and saved him. And from that point on, Paul was willing to do anything to see the name of Christ magnified. Paul understood the truth that to live is Christ and to die is gain, as Philippians verse 121 says. All he cared about was Jesus, and his entire ministry was Christ-centered. Everything was about Jesus. Everything was a point to Jesus. Whether it was community, whether it's they're coming together for prayer and praying for the, op- the, the, the prayer to open up an opportunity for him to share the word or a door of opportunity, it was Christ-centered. It was about Jesus. And so... Our ministry must be, it must be in and among us. It's all about Jesus. If it's anything else, then it will fail. We can have big programs, we can have a big budget, we can have a new building and tons of bodies, but that doesn't mean it's Christ-centered. If we're not Christ-centered, which we are God's people, then how do we expect the church to be Christ-centered? Jesus must be the essence and heartbeat behind everything we do. He is our example. He is our example. Look at chapter 2, verse 5. Like I said, we're going to be skipping through these different verses. Verse 5 of chapter 2, we read, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, he became nothing in order that we might become something. And if his example meant that he humbled himself, so must we. See, we have put together this mindset within Christian circles today that we have looked at the strategies of the world and imported them to the church and taken a worldly definition of success and imported it and Christianized it as our own. We cannot do that. We have to look at the Word of God and let the Word of God be our determining factor on how we live and conduct ourselves in the midst of this this sinful fallen world, following the example of Christ. But often, see, we, we want to marry the things of the world and Christianize it, and that makes even our sinful behavior look acceptable, but it's not. And if His example meant that He humbled Himself, so must we, but our pride gets in the way. I remember going on a mission trip to Northern Ireland in 2003, we were training to do a great deal of ministries. We were working with uh, families, children of the Irish Republican Army in Northern Ireland. And we were trained to do vacation Bible school. We were trained to do coffee houses and, and music and share. And when we get there, that's not what we did. You know what the first thing is that they made us do? Clean toilets. Do the dishes. 
because the leader of that organization understood that we needed to be willing to do the small stuff first. Consider this story about the calling of a missionary in Charles Haddon Spurgeon, pastor of the 19th century. He wrote in lectures to my students, he wrote this. From someone or another, I heard in conversation of a plan adopted by Matthew Wilkes for examining a young man who wanted to be a missionary. The drift, if not the detail of the test, commends itself to my judgment, though not to my taste. In other words, it's pretty interesting, but I wouldn't do it myself. He says, the young man desired to go to India as a missionary in connection with the London Missionary Society. Mr. Wilkes was appointed to consider his fitness for such a post. He wrote to the young man and told him to call upon him at 6 o'clock the next morning. The brother lived many miles off, but he was at the house at 6 o'clock punctually. Mr. Wilkes did not, however, enter the room until hours after. The brother waited wonderingly but patiently. What would you do, by the way? Someone told you to be there at 6 a.m., and then they made you wait another two hours. Just think about that. And last, Mr. Wilkes arrived and addressed the candidate thus in his usual nasal tones. Well, young man, so you want to be a missionary? Yes, sir. Do you love the Lord Jesus Christ? Yes, sir, I hope I do. And have you had any education? Yes, sir, a little. Well, now, we'll try you out. Can you spell cat? The young man looked confused and hardly knew how to answer so preposterous a question. His mind evidently halted between indignation and submission, but in a moment he replied steadily, C-A-T, cat. Very good, said Mr. Wilkes. Now, can you spell dog? Our young martyr hesitated, but Mr. Wilkes said in his coolest manner, Oh, never mind, don't be bashful. You spelt the other word so well that I should think you will be able to spell this. High as the attainment is, it is not so elevated, but what you might do it without blushing. This youthful Job replied, D-O-G, dog. Well, that is right. I see you will do well in your spelling. And now for your arithmetic. How many are twice two? Two times two. It is a wonder that Mr. Wilkes did not receive twice two after the fashion of muscular Christianity, but the patient youth gave the right reply and was dismissed. Matthew Wilkes at the committee meeting said, I cordially recommend that young man. His testimonials and character I have duly examined. And besides that, I have given him a rare personal trial such as few could bear. I tried his self-denial. He was up in the morning early. I tried his temper, and I tried his humility. He can spell cat and dog, and I can tell that twice two make four, and he will do for a missionary exceedingly well. Spurgeon writes, Now what that old gentleman is thus said to have done with exceedingly bad taste, we may with much propriety do with ourselves. In other words, he was testing the young man's humility. Was his pride willing to get in the way? How beneath him was it? How much is our pride willing to get in the way? We want the glories, but we don't want the service. How much are we willing to be behind the scenes? Christ was. He is our example. He humbled himself. How much are we willing to be slighted or disrespected? Christ was willing to suffer the loss of all things. We must not only follow his example, but we must have him, to be um, have him to be exalted in all things. We want Jesus to be exalted in all things. Look at verse 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him that in the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, this is what we're going to be doing in the next four weeks as we enter into our next series called Live to Give. 
we're going to be looking to see how everything can be placed under God's or Christ's supremacy. His name is the highest exalted one. And everything that we do in our life must be in submission to Him. We're going to be examining the supremacy of Christ in all things. The Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper, who lived from 1837 to 1920, once said this, and you're going to be hearing this quote a lot in the next few weeks. In the total expanse of human life, there is not one square inch of which the Christ, who alone is sovereign, does not declare, that is mine. In other words, every aspect of our life should be under Christ's lordship. We, had, we need to see Christ's supremacy in everything that we do. Or as the mission of desiring God, the, the ministry of John Piper says is this for their mission, to spread a passion for the supremacy of God in all things for the joy of all peoples. In other words, we want to see Christ be the Lord in everything that we do, whether it's in our finances, whether it's in our married, married life, whether it's in our, the education we give our children, whether it's in the selection of a mate, whether it's in your vocation or your career, whether it's in even your activities or your entertainment or in your hobbies, is Christ supreme in every aspect of life? Do you bow to His Lordship in everything? See, Jesus must be supreme in every single thread of our lives. We can't stand before people and expect to be effective if we can't testify to the reality of Christ in our life. He is our confidence, and that is where our confidence comes from. Look at number three. That's point number three. It's confident. Write that down. Confident in your notes. Any confidence we have comes not from ourselves, but from Him. Look at verse chapter 3, verse 4. Paul writes, Though I myself have reason for confidence... In the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss for this, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord." In other words, he's saying then, our confidence doesn't involve our resume. I don't care who you are. I don't care what you've done. Everyone alike is the same under the Almighty God. In that we're all sinners in need of a Savior. I had the privilege of worshiping together uh, at a community, uh, Allegheny Alliance Church, when I was living in Pittsburgh with some friends during our homeless period of time. And I remember going to church and dropping my kids off in the children's ministry, and I get on the, uh, I, I come across a very large African-American man, and I'm looking at him, and I'm like, that's Mike Tomlin. For those that don't know, that aren't Pittsburgh Steelers fans, he was the coach of the Pittsburgh Steelers. And I watched him just go into church and sit down, and there's just, he's sitting there with everybody else. He's alike, just everybody else. Here, the man had just won the Super Bowl, but he was just like everybody else in the sight of God. Sinner, All sinners in the sight of God. Didn't matter what level of attainment that he had. He was sitting at churches with everybody else. You're talking about corporate executives and homeless people sitting side by side. It was amazing to see the true movement of the Spirit of God. He was willing, his confidence wasn't in his resume. And it can't be in ours. It wasn't in Paul's. Instead, our confidence must be in our Redeemer. In Him and in Him alone. Look at Philippians chapter 3, verse 8. When Paul said, I count everything as loss of the surpassing worth 
of knowing Christ my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, as garbage. As garbage in order that I may gain Christ. It's all about Jesus. That's why we are to know Christ and to make him known. That's why Paul could say, to live is Christ, to die is gain. To live, that means I've got a ministry that Christ has for me. But to die, that means I get to go into the presence of my Lord. I think many of us today, we just hold Christ at at, at so far. We want religion, but we don't want the relationship. We want the Savior, but we aren't prepared to sacrifice. We don't want to give the totality of our being to show who Jesus Christ is in every aspect of our lives. We want Him only so far as He makes us feel good. But when he calls us to give up something, that's when we, like the rich young ruler, walk away. Our confidence comes not from our resume, but from our Redeemer. And it also comes from our race. Now, I'm not talking about race as in ethnicity, because within Scripture there is neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free. All are one in Christ Jesus, not even male or female. But race in terms of pursuing after Christ. Look at verse 12 of chapter 3. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Jesus has made me his own. I've been transformed. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind me and straining toward what lies ahead, I press onward or on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. See, he presses on here. It's race terminology. Whenever you're in a race, you don't stop to remember what you just passed. You keep going. I remember working with a, a friend of mine in high school. He was, he was running the mile, and he starts off, and he's just out of the gate so fast. He comes around the first, first uh, lap, he's winning. Second lap, he's winning. Third lap, he's getting near the end of the race, and he just stops and walks over to the high He, he falls down on the high jump pit. And everybody comes over, and they say, are you okay or okay? And he goes, ah, I was tired. Just didn't want to run anymore. See, many of us do that. We're running the race, and we just go, well, we're going great. Things are just cruising along. And then we're like the hare and the tortoise and the hare, and we just stop the nap a little while. We get confident boasting in what we did do. But see, the word press on, Paul is using that terminology, and it represents this habit of life to keep pressing on. For the verb diaco, that's what the word is here, pressing on. It's in the present tense, which emphasizes the lifelong commitment that gripped and guided this sold-out saint. Are you sold out? Do you have all your cards on the table? Are you all in? Has a passion for the pursuit of the person of Christ gripped and enriched your heart? What are you passionate about that is for which you will make time? Now, the Bears have their kickoff today. There are many more people that are concerned more about the Bears game in their season than they are about knowing Christ as their Lord and Savior. And I'm not talking just about the unbelievers. I'm talking about church people. Now, I'm a Bears fan. I hope they do well. But I've also learned that don't attach my heart to it because they will break your heart. Just like the Cubs do every year. We attach our heart to Christ. We find our significance and our strength in Christ. I mean, if, if you are affected by the Bears game until you are miserable the next day, if they lose, then you've got to ask yourself the question, where's the grip of my heart? What am I holding on to? See, the word press on means to follow or press hard after. Literally, to pursue as one does a fleeing enemy. It means to chase, harass, harass, vex, and pressure, and was used for chasing down criminals. It speaks of an intensity of effort leading to pursue with earnestness and diligence in order to obtain, to go after with the desire of obtaining, or in some context, the desire to harm. But it's running after with everything that we've got. 
See, many of us have become complacent, stopping along the race, thinking we're done. There's so much left, race left to one. Which is why Paul said, I press onward, or on toward the goal of the prize, of the upward goal of God in Christ Jesus. See, Paul was looking to his reward. Are you looking to your reward? Now, there is a trend among Christians today to remove any motivation of fear or reward to serve God. But such thinking, while popular, is completely antithetical to the Bible. The Bible talks a great deal about reward. Matthew 5 through 6, when Jesus gives the, the Sermon on the Mount, he talks as great as your reward be. Matthew 10 42, Luke 6, 1 Corinthians 3, 9. I could go on and on. Now, granted, we will take all of our reward, all the crowns that we give, and we will lay them at the feet of Jesus Christ. There will be no animosity, there will be no jealousy in heaven. We will just be eternally delighting in who He is, giving everything back that is already His. But reward and judgment are to be motivations for us to be effective stewards. We need to be pressing on, seeking the reward. I remember when I was younger and much lighter on my feet, and I used to somewhat be athletic. Uh, I was a junior high, and I got into the state track meet when I was in sixth grade. I was competing against mostly seventh graders. It's my claim to fame, so just give me a minute. Um, And it was the last race of the season. If you're unfamiliar, the 800 meters is two laps around the track. And I started off well, out of the blocks. It's the last meet, the state track meet, state championship. I'd made it there. I didn't know how. Um, Just Irish, I guess, because I'm lucky. And I started off well out of the blocks, came around the track, leading after the first 400 meters. I chugged around the track, seeing no one in front of me. I got into the last 100 meters and saw the tape. I couldn't believe that I was in sixth grade and going to win the seventh grade 800 meters. I started to think about it and started to think about all the good things and all the acclamation, and I lost my focus. And in the last 10 meters, I got passed. I ended up being second. I hadn't been running to win. I was just running for what others were going to say. I I got beat by six-tenths of a second. The next year, though, I came back stronger and hungrier. I made my way to the state finals again, and this time I was determined to win. I stepped out of the blocks, was leading after the first 100 meters, kept chugging along. I came around the bend after the first lap and was winning. But this time, I was determined to not lose focus or let up. I kept going, and I came to the last 200 meters and started to kick. I kept thinking of the last year and wasn't about to let that happen again. I came around that last bend and just kept pumping my arms and legs and it hurts kick. I couldn't feel anything anymore. I couldn't breathe. I just saw the tape and I didn't care about anything else. I wasn't even going to get to it. I was going to go through it. And I wasn't running for what anybody else said. I just wanted to get through. I wanted to win. And when I crossed that line, I had one. And in doing so, I set the state record. Now, the next year, I came back as an eighth grader and found myself in the state final for the third time. And, and like two years before, I found myself in the lead after the first lap. As I entered into the last 330, 333 yard, 330 yards, I felt someone at my back. I didn't know why I did, but I started to kick. Now, if you're an 800-meter runner, you know that you don't kick at 330. You kick at 200 or 100. And I, I just said I had to kick. I couldn't let up. I didn't want to hold anything back, and I just opened it up and went. I came around the corner and kept pumping and pumping. I crossed the tape again, the state champion. Now, I'm not, I don't mean to talk about that as much as to, to illustrate and say that is the type of desire we should have is not care about anything else, just to get through and say, I want that that reward. I want Christ. That's the reward for the believer, to cross that tape at the end of life, to fight until the very end. See, the first time I had lost because I didn't fight till the very end. And many of us have just become complacent, not fighting until the end, until Christ takes us home or He comes again. 
I learned a valuable lesson. Don't give up. Don't give in. Run with everything you've got until the end. There is no retirement for the Christian. You must run the race with Christ until Jesus comes or until you die. Fight until the end. Even in the difficulties of life, even when the mundane is there, we must fight until the end. That's what Paul did. His life was poured out as a drink offering. Now, one thing is sure enough. If you're going to run the race of faith, faith, you must be committed. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. See the word, stand firm in the Lord. You should underline that and circle that in your Bible. It's the dominating part of verse 9, chapter 4. It's a command. It's imperative. They were being persecuted and suffering. They needed to be able to stand firm in the midst of it all. They were committed. How committed are you in the midst of difficulty? How willing are you to fold up? when it gets difficult, when it seems like the cards are down. So many Christians are so good when everything's going well, but as soon as it looks bad, they quit. And they throw in the card, where's your faith? Where's your faith? Do we not not worship a God who conquered death and hell? Where is our faith? Do we believe that he's the creator of the universe? That through everything we can do through him because it is Christ who gives us strength? We're so busy catering to the whims of other people that we don't care about what Almighty God says. We don't even know how to be together in community, much less worship Almighty God. I say that to our shame. Half of the people in here, you, I mean, for those that are new, great, we're glad you're here, but for those that have been around a long time, you don't even know half the people. You don't even know their names. I say that to our detriment, our shame. We're to be in community, and how can we be in community if we don't know one another? It's one of the reasons we have name tags. Mine fell off. Well, thanks. But that's what it is. That's how we get into small groups, and we develop these type of relationships that Paul had. This intimate concern for one another's lives, that we share the intimate details of our lives, that we celebrate together, that we cry together. I think about, even in our small group, we had John and Vicky Rosas, which... uh, uh, they, they said, we want to take a group picture of everybody because we love this group. And they get together, and we're all together. And John goes, one, two, we're pregnant, three. <laughs> and we were all celebrating together just as we can celebrate the pregnancy of Mondo and Marcy because they're going to have a baby. Um, together see it's great to celebrate to be together as a body to celebrate those things that's what it means to be committed not only to god but to one another to cry with those who are crying to rejoice with those who are rejoicing but teaching us all to stand together see many are not committed they are religious but not committed which means they have a form of religion but they can't It can't be seen in all of their lives. Or as C.S. Lewis once said about them, of all bad men, religious bad men are the absolute worst. See, not only are we committed ourselves, but being committed includes the following. Here's the first one. Relationships that honor God. 
I'm going to go through these rather quickly. In verse, chapter 4, verse 2, I entreat Iodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. These are two women who are some type of leader within the church. They're co-laborers with Paul. He says, yes, I also ask you, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with, with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are written in the book of life. One of the coolest things about all the addresses that Paul has is he always has a section of all these people's names. He knows them intimately. Now, these two women were to agree in the Lord. And what we mean by that is is they were to be in right relationship with one another. And that's what we need to understand is that being committed includes relationships that honor God. It means being together and agreeing with one another and trying to work out these differences as best as we can within the Lord. Being committed also means rejoicing in all circumstances. Look at verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Where is your joy? C.S. Lewis wrote, All joy emphasizes our pilgrim status, always reminds, beckons, awakens desire. Our best havings are wantings. He also said in his book, Letters to Malcolm, Joy is the serious business of heaven. And the very nature of joy makes nonsense of our common distinction between having and wanting. In other words, joy is a byproduct of our relationship with God. We praise what we enjoy. As Lewis said, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is the appointed consummation. Now, where is your joy? That comes from true commitment. Without true commitment and right relationship, you don't understand joy. And joy must be seen in us. Without the joy of the Lord, we have no strength. As Pastor Andrew quoted earlier when he was quoting the book of Nehemiah, the joy of the Lord is our strength. Without joy, we have no strength. We can't manufacture it. God must create it in us, but we do cultivate it by keeping a focus on Him and keeping ourselves in right relationship with Him. And how do we do that? We'll continually look on in verse 8 of chapter 4. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. In other words, we need to cultivate right thinking and living in a chaotic world. Right thinking and living in a chaotic world. Right thinking determines behavior. And when we are thinking about those things which God has said are are good, that will help us in how we live our lives. We have to renew our minds with the words of God to defragment our brains when the world messes them up, and we aren't running smoothly. Just after you have to defragment your computer when everything starts messing up. We defragment our minds with the word of God. And lastly, we must be relying on his promises. Look at verse 19. And my God will supply every need of yours according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Rely on his promises at a congregation. To boldly rely on his promises. To pray back the promises of God to God. See, September 11th was a life-changing day for us as a nation, and the death of Christ was the life-changing day for us as Christians. He has changed us so that we might change this life or present this life-changing message to others. We must have a life-changing ministry. The question is, is do we? Do we have life-changing community? Do we have life-changing worship? Do we have life-changing prayer meetings? Do we have life-changing fellowship that we get together and see God work in our midst? If not, what can we do? Well, we can align ourselves with the Word of God, repent of our sin, and follow and get in alignment with God's Word and be willing to do anything and everything to make Christ known. What 
is God calling you to do for His glory and His kingdom? What price are you willing to pay? How far are you willing to go? Know this. If you're not willing to give everything, to be all in, then don't give anything at all. Walk away. If Jesus is not worth your life, then His life is not for you. Jesus, His sacrifice was so great that it requires the entirety of who we are. And if you are prepared to do anything, to give anything, and to sacrifice everything for His glory and your joy, then enter in. Pursue it wholeheartedly and embrace this life-changing ministry. Let's pray.